Hey, this morning to start off, I need five volunteers. And I've got to warn you, in order to get these volunteers, I'm going to put on a little pressure. The, the service will not continue until we get them. That's the first point. Second, there's chocolate involved. And third, I promise I won't ask you to do anything embarrassing or humiliating. So what I need is five volunteers to line up starting right here and then going that way. Who would be willing to come on down? Just hop up. Jay, thank you. Visitor, what's your name? Steve Sandoval. Steve Sandoval. Yes, sir. Right on. Nice to meet you, Steve. Three more. Don't New guys doing it. Some of the rest of you regulars can get up. I'm embarrassing myself all my life. So. <laughs> <laughs> Two more. Lemuel, right on. Come on down. And one more, one more. Actually, actually, we're good. We're good. That, that does the trick. Now, I told you all that this involved chocolate. And what I'm going to tell you right now is that whoever is closest to the chocolate right at this moment is going to receive the chocolate. So where is the chocolate? Aha. So it goes down that way to the guy at the end of the line. Daryl? Sorry, Steve. You, you, you thought you were going to get that chocolate. We do that to a newcomer. We get your hopes up. Are you okay? All right. <laughs> he'll, he'll share it with you, but that will mess up my point. Do that after service. All right. Y'all go have a seat. Thank you. Let's thank our volunteers. I'm guessing Steve wasn't the only one that thought I had the chocolate and that he was going to get it because he was close to me. But sometimes uh, things are different than how we perceive them. Jesus made that point at the end of our passage today. You remember the verse, many who are first will be last and the last will be first. And I think about that, just how we may have misunderstood who is going to get the chocolate up here. I want to bring out the point through this message today that often the way this world perceives people is different from the way God perceives people in light of His truth and eternity. Many who are first will be last and the last first. And, and I think that was something His disciples were continuing to learn. Many who are last will be first and the first will be last. Because I see their reactions to two groups. One's a reaction, one's of a lack of a reaction. These parents come bringing these little children to Jesus. They have one reaction to them. They have their assessment of those children. And then a rich young ruler comes to Jesus. And I believe they had a different perception of him that was about to be shattered. And they were going to learn along with us that many who are first will be last and the, the last will be first. So I invite you to join with me. Mark chapter 10, verse 13. As they were bringing children to Jesus that he might touch them. Now, Mark uses a general word for children that could mean children of a lot of ages. When Luke records this, he specifically says infants, which would tie in with a common custom at this time. Many parents, when their child turned one, you know what they wanted to do? They wanted to find a prominent, well-respected rabbi, teacher, take that child to the rabbi and have that child be blessed by that teacher, that well-respected teacher. I imagine today if, if, if we did that in the church world and we were looking for those well-respected teachers, there might be long lines at Charles Swindoll's church. I want Charles Swindoll to, to, to bless my child or, or David Jeremiah. They'd go find these respected rabbis and have them bless their, their child. 
Among many of the people, Jesus was well-respected as a teacher. So it makes sense that they would bring their children to him to bless them. Now, how would Jesus' disciples react to this? And just imagine the scene, especially if some of these were infants, and you've been around infants much, and you know there says the parents were bringing children to him. They kept bringing them. Sounds like it could have been quite a hubbub. You think this was quiet? You think this was peaceful? There may have been some crying, some fussing. Eh, quiet down. And the disciples are looking at all this, and it says the disciples rebuked them. Rebuked them for daring to bring their children to Jesus. We don't know what they said. Get, get out of here. Go away. Please, leave. Now, I often think when I read about Jesus 12, if I had a nightclub at this time in history in Israel and I wanted some bouncers, I'd come find these guys because they seem to enjoy it. Like they're always bouncing people who, who want to see Jesus. And here it happens again. Verse 14, how would Jesus react to them rebuking them? When Jesus saw it, he was indignant. That word carries the idea of anger. Since we know it's Jesus, we know it was a righteous anger. He was angry, and rightfully so, at his disciples for telling these longing parents to send them and their children away. What was going on with these disciples? Maybe Jesus is thinking, not again. <laughs> Haven't we been through this? What was going on with them? Well, maybe they were sucking in some of the modern cultural ideas about children. we got to be aware of sucking in cultural ideas that differ with God's ideas, do we not? Because even though the Jewish people valued children, throughout the Roman Empire, their stock was getting lower and lower. They were viewed as lesser and, and lesser within the, the Roman Empire. Maybe they had good intentions. Where is Jesus heading on this journey? You remember? He's on the final stretch here. He's heading to a cross. So maybe his guys are finally getting that in their minds and they're saying, boy, he's, he's got to be wrestling through a lot right now. Surely this is a distraction that he doesn't need. And surely if, if ever there was a time where we might think Jesus was justified in sending some people away so as he processed that weight. But what would Jesus do? He, he was indignant and said to them, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Now, how many of you who have been a child or have had children think that the childlikeness that he's talking about means innocent. <laughs> no. David says, I was conceived in sin, correct? Preacher Vodi Bakum says we are vipers from the diaper. <laughs> We're all born with a sin nature into this world. So it can't be innocence. An author with the last name of Rawlinson writes this. He says, The point of comparison is the fact that children are receptive and content to be dependent on others' care and bounty. 
He goes on to say, it is in such a spirit that the kingdom must be received. It is a gift of God and not an achievement on part of man. It must be simply accepted in as much as it can never be deserved. And kids are good at receiving gifts. Yes? They're good at asking for gifts. Yes? I read a story that William Hendrickson shared about a businessman that that put out a stack of gold coins on his windowsill, just outside his window where he was working. And he put a sign next to it that said, free gold coin for all who would, would have one. And all day long he watched adults walk by that, read it, and keep on walking, probably thinking, he's not going to fool me. And it, at the end of the day, when he was just about to wrap things up, he, he was walking out there to grab that pile of coins and bring it in when he saw a little boy walk by Put it in his pocket without a second thought and kept on walking. That, that's kids. Kids know how to receive an offer when it's in front of them. I think about this morning, I was wrapping up some things for church, and our four-year-old Luke woke up, and Luke did not go through this mental process, oh, Dad's working on things for church, I shouldn't bother him, because that's not how we roll it at house number one. He, he didn't ask. He just came where I was working on my laptop, and you know what he did? He climbed up on my lap. Little Luke wanted to be on my lap. He came and climbed up on my lap, and that's where he sat. Kids know how to receive gifts, whether it's love or or other gifts. They know how to be dependent on those who care for them. And they were blessed in a special way, those whose parents brought them. It says, he took them in his arms, folded them in his arms. It's how the Greek can be translated there. He folded those children in his arms and blessed them. The Greek there doesn't mean he just blessed them like he's going through some routine, like some cheap Santa Claus at the mall at Christmas time. Next, next, next. You know, he can get kind of salty sometimes. (laughs) Those kids don't mean something to all those guys. Some of them are just collecting a paycheck, right? It says he fervently blessed them, which means each one that came in his arms. He poured his heart into it as he blessed that little one because they were one of his beloved creations. He fervently blessed those little ones laying his hands on them. And it does mean even more knowing that he was in the shadow of the cross, does it not? Even with that weight upon his shoulders, and we know it was a weight. When you read passages like Gethsemane, it was a weight. Even with that weight on his shoulders, he took time for each little one. The love of Jesus. This was brought to life for me by an author named David McKenna. David McKenna went to a Cambodian refugee camp where they were feeding hungry children. And he shares this story. He says, Two Cambodian children had followed us. I beckoned to the little boy. At first he hesitated. Then looking at his sister for approval, he took half steps toward me. I scooped him up. Bare bones protruded through the flesh as I felt starvation for the first time. Emotions that I had only known at the dedication of my own children engulfed me as I folded that boy into my arms. Then he snuggled his head into the crook of my neck in a show of love that I will feel throughout eternity. At that moment, our love was perfect and our trust was complete. I would have walked a continent with him in my arms in order to claim Him as my Son. 
or I would have taken his place in a Cambodian hut if I could have been assured of his future. Neither of those choices was mine. But the meaning of the moment can never be taken away from me. For the present, I'm content to know that I have had the privilege of entering into the Spirit of Jesus Christ when He folded the children into His arms and they snuggled their heads into the the crook of His neck. The love of Jesus for the little children. It's beautiful. It's powerful. For all who will come in a childlike fashion. The disciples had a low view of those children. So much so that they rebuked the parents. Told them to send them away. Now the next guy I'm suspecting they had a pretty high assessment of. And I'll share why in a few minutes. Verse 17. As he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him. Now first this looks good. This, this man doesn't just walk up to Jesus. He runs. And he doesn't just stand in his presence. He, he kneels. Now who is this guy? We learn in, in this Gospel and in Luke and Matthew that he's exceedingly rich. One of the Gospels tells us also that he's young. One of the Gospels tells us that he's a ruler, maybe of a local synagogue or something like that. We don't know what, but whatever the case, he is young, he is rich, and he's a ruler. If, if the Jews had had a Time magazine with their annual 100 most influential people, this guy may have been on the cover. He had it all going on in earthly terms, right? The things we often put value on in this world, he had it all going on. And he had a question for Jesus. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? I see two assumptions this man had in this passage. If you have your Bibles and you're looking at it, what are the two assumptions you see? Number one, that Jesus was good, right? And number two, because he says, good teacher. Number two, that he can do something to earn eternal life. That's why he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Okay, and as Jesus answers him, I believe what Jesus is doing, he's going to answer this man's assumptions. He's going to answer based on how he's thinking. He's going to deal with those. Verse 18, Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now, some have read this passage and say, see, Jesus is denying that He's God. He's denying His deity. Is that what's going on here? No, if you know your Bible, all through the Gospels, and and even in the epistles, we see that Jesus is God. One of the clearest verses, Romans 9.5, Christ who is God over all. It doesn't give much... More clear than that, okay? So he can't be denying that he's God. So what is he doing when he says this man, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. He's exploring this man's assumptions and motives. That's why he says, why do you? Why do you call me good? No one's good except God alone. He was reaffirming the fact that often we throw around the, the word good in a much lighter fashion 
than we should. He was thinking of goodness in in biblical terms, like Paul did in Romans 3.12. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Because what do we do when we define good? We think of people compared to people. And we compare and we say, oh yeah, that dude's pretty good. I had dinner with him last week and I know he's involved in this and that. And, or sometimes we do that with ourselves to make ourselves feel better. We'll find someone who's struggling. Yeah, I feel pretty good. But the, the biblical definition of goodness is not a comparison with other people. It's a comparison with God, which led Paul to the point in Romans 3.23 to say, all have sinned and fall short of His glory. That's the definition of goodness Jesus is getting at with this man. He's, in other words, as M.B. Stonehouse put it, he said, he's saying to this guy, do not lightly, without knowing to whom you are speaking, ascribe to me that which pertains alone to God. Okay? Walter Wessel gets even more direct. Listen to this. It's as though Jesus is saying to him, before you address me with such a title, you had better think soberly about what the implications are, and especially what they are for you. Don't just toss that word around lightly. The second question was what? What must I do to inherit eternal life? And you can understand how people, when, when taking verses out of context from the Jewish Bible, what we call the Old Testament, could could get to this point if you take a verse out of context and run with it. Uh, Verses like Deuteronomy 30, 16, where it says, By keeping His commandments and His statutes and His rules, then you shall live. If you you yank that out of the context of faith, which, which the whole Bible is bathed in and just focused on that idea, as many did along the way, But Jesus is going to answer him based on his own assumption. What must I do? Jesus is going to take him to the law. Specifically, the second half of the Ten Commandments, which if you know the Ten Commandments, the second half deals with how we we love our neighbors. First half is about how we relate to God. He's going to go to there. Verse 19, you know the commandments, Jesus says. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud, honor your father and mother. Now those of you who know the Old Testament, know the Ten Commandments, may notice a couple things there. Do not defraud, I don't remember that one. Many believe what Jesus is doing is expanding on do not steal or do not bear false witness. Those are ways of defrauding people. You also notice that He did not include do not covet. We'll get there in a moment. Matthew added here the heart of it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Right? So he gives him this list. The second half of the Ten Commandments. How would this man feel that he measured up to that list? It's kind of surprising if you haven't been in this passage before. Verse 20. He said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. A youth there, may believe, means the time he was bar mitzvahed, the point at which he became accountable before God as a young man for how he lived in light of God's Word. I've kept those since my youth. He is confident, surprisingly so, in, in the, the face of, of Jesus. When I see that confidence, 
It makes me think about something that J. Gresham Moshin, I know that's a mouthful, wrote. He said, a low view of law leads to legalism in religion. A high view of law makes a man a seeker after grace. A low view of law leads to legalism in religion. Because if we have a low view of God's law, God's standards, we're, we tend to think we can do something to please Him. Okay, but if you have a high view of God's law and you realize the mirror that it is of our own sinfulness, it, it drives you to grace. Okay? But underneath that surface confidence, he's a, he's a human being. Often we're a mixture of things, right? I believe underneath that deep down, maybe when he woke up at 3 in the morning, if he's like us, sometimes you're confident during the day, but you wake up at 3 in the morning, you start thinking about stuff. You start to question things. Matthew shows that, that he knew something was missing. Matthew 19.20 says this man adds to that statement, what do I still lack? What do I still lack? So even underneath that outer confidence, he knew something, something was, was missing. Perhaps his conscience was driving home the, the truth that would later be poured out in James 2.10. Whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. That, that's God's standard. We said that Jesus left out, do not covet. I believe that's because Jesus is about to deal with that one very personally in this man's life. As Jesus goes on in verse 21, says he... Looking at him, loved him. This is like an intense look at this man's face. And, and it says Jesus loved this young man. He loved him. And he said to him, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have. And give to the poor. And you'll have treasure in heaven. And come follow me. I believe this man dealt with the sin of covetousness. I'll explain why more later when we look at his response. I believe he had also broken the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. I'm going to explain why a little bit more in a moment, but I want to deal with the sticky wicket here. We just talked about receiving the kingdom like a child by faith, right? Now, if you read this on a surface level, doesn't it look like Jesus is saying you've got to do something to earn the kingdom? Let's be honest. Doesn't it look like that on a surface reading? But does Jesus contradict Himself? No. I believe what Jesus is doing is putting His finger on where the man's trust is. His wealth is His God in which He trusts. And that must be removed before he will trust Jesus like a child. That's why he tells him to sell all he has and, and give to the poor. It was an idol keeping him from trusting in Jesus. This is warning. 1 Timothy 6.17 Paul writes, As for the rich and this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes 
on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. I want to share a couple warnings about the love of money. Because we know it's not wealth itself that is sinful. We know even within the Gospels, there were wealthy women that funded Jesus and His men on His ministry. You can be wealthy and in right relationship with God. Wealth itself is not sinful. Love of money is a pernicious idol that must be rooted out. Because what does it do? It, it, it puts barbs in us that tie us to this temporary world and keep us from thinking about what really matters now and in eternity. Dr. Samuel Johnson was an author who got a tour one time of some of the castles in Europe. And as he toured one particular castle and saw the wonderful buildings and the, the green grounds, somebody asked him what he thought. He had an interesting statement. He said, these are the things that make it difficult to die. Do you understand what he's saying? These are the things that if we're not careful can attach us to this temporary world. D.L. Moody, evangelist, the getting riches brings care. Keeping them brings trouble. Abusing them brings guilt. And losing them brings sorrow. It is a great mistake to make so much of riches as we do. So the mistake having them? No. It is making so much of them as we do. Listen to some sobering words from wealthy men throughout history. Rockefeller said this, I have made many millions, but they have brought me no happiness. Vanderbilt said, the care of $200 million is enough to kill anyone. There is no pleasure in it. Henry Ford said, I was happier when doing a mechanic's job. Andrew Carnegie said that millionaires seldom smile. I also read an account of Pompeii, you know, where the, the volcano erupted and many were encased in ash. And they found the remains of, of a woman encased in ash, reaching for a bag of pearls. So they found her with her feet turned toward the gate, towards freedom, but her eyes turned toward the pearls. And the author said it this way, maybe she herself had dropped them as she was fleeing for her life. Maybe she had found them where they had been dropped by another. But be that as it may, though death was hard at her heels and life was beckoning to her beyond the city gates, she could not shake off their spell. She had turned to pick them up with death as her reward. It reminds us of Lot's wife. Her attachment to Sodom when God was in the process of setting them free led to her being turned into a pillar of salt. One final one. It is good to have the things that money can buy, provided you don't lose the things that money cannot buy. Verse 22 is one of the saddest verses in the whole Bible. How would the man respond? Just disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. 
came to Jesus asking for the answers, and because he would not receive them in faith, he left sorrowful. The, the words there are picturesque. It's the Greek can be used in settings where storm clouds are approaching when bad weather comes. It's those storm clouds gathered around this man. His face was downcast, and he left. And I look at that, and I think, man, he had severely overestimated the value of his worldly wealth and severely underestimated the rabbi he was talking to. As many have pointed out, he may have been thinking, hey, no other rabbi would demand such extreme things of me. But Jesus was no other rabbi. <laughs> Jesus is the water of life who satisfies forever like nothing that this world offers can satisfy. He's the bread of life. He is the light of the world. You follow Him, you'll never walk in darkness. He could have been the source of this man's satisfaction. Now think about what Jesus did as He took His finger and He put it right on the thing that was keeping Him from coming to Him in childlike faith. And maybe I'm weird. Maybe it's because we just showed Jaden E.T. a couple weeks ago on Sunday afternoon, but I think about that finger and I think about E.T. You remember the part in E.T.? where little Elliot cut himself on a rotating saw blade and his finger was bleeding and E.T.'s finger lights up, it starts glowing and he goes, ouch. And he touched Elliot's finger and he healed it. He, he knew just where to touch to bring healing. Jesus knew just where this man needed touched. If he, if he would be freed to trust in him. The sad thing is this man would not receive it. And I want to bring out a point that many bring up here. So is this required? Sell all you have and give to the poor of every believer? I don't believe so. Jesus knew what this man needed, but the same Jesus who put His finger on what needed to be removed in this man's life does reserve the right to put His finger as our Lord on what needs to be removed in ours. So I want to encourage you this morning, if you have not come to Jesus in faith and repentance and received His gift at the cross and His resurrection? Is He putting His finger on something right now that is keeping you from doing that? Lay it down. Don't walk away from here disheartened. Turn to Him in faith. But even as believers, how many of you know the journey of trust continues? He continues to call disciples into new adventures to lay this down, to go do this. Is there anything He's putting His finger on in, in our lives that's keeping us from trusting Him? It can be possessions even in the lives of believers. Anything we're so attached to that it keeps us from following Him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Maybe it's a sinful relationship that He's been convicting you about. But you won't let it go. And it's between you and Him right now. Maybe it's a, a pet sin. Because we refuse to believe that only He can satisfy our deepest needs. We do not really believe that. We believe this pet sin will. And he's putting His finger on that, saying you need to confess that. Leave it. Follow me. Verse 23 says, After the man walked away disheartened, Jesus looked around. And his disciples and whoever else was still standing around, he looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. 
And the disciples were amazed at His words. Why were they amazed at His words? They were amazed because they believed a lie that many even today in the church world believe. That there is a a formula. If someone is righteous, the wealth will flow. If someone is unrighteous or if they're in poverty, surely it's because there's this heinous sin or, or lack of faith in their life. And this is another one of those things. You can understand how the Jewish culture at this time could have fallen into that, and many of them did. Because what? In Deuteronomy, they, they have been promised blessings on the nation for obedience, right? Including physical blessings and curses for disobedience. But where they went wrong is they made that into a formula for every individual life. Someone's wealthy, he must have favor with God. That's probably what the disciples thought of this guy. They may have been jealous of him knowing the other parts of their character, but they may have thought, hey, this guy's probably going to be a good one. Looks like he's blessed by God. So when, when he says how difficult it will be, they're shocked. They, they've forgotten the lesson of Job, right? Even the righteous suffer and can walk through poverty. Sometimes the church world today forgets that the Apostle Paul learned how to be content in poverty or in riches. But this shocked them. So Jesus reiterates it. He says to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. You notice something different there? This time he doesn't even say it's only for the rich. He says it's difficult for everyone. And then he goes on to sharpen that point. He says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, some believe that there may have been a gate in the wall of Jerusalem that was very small. And so small that for a camel to get through that gate, the camel would have to kneel down and the owner would have to unload him and then he could get in. I studied that this week. And I came across scholar after scholar that brought serious doubt to the reality of that gate and the fact that that's what Jesus meant. Walter Wessel said the existence of any such gate is doubtful. Uh, Another scholar, Rawlinson, said, No authority more trustworthy than the imaginative conjectures of modern guides to Jerusalem for this idea. All were agreed that even if there were such a gate, Jesus is not bringing home the idea that it is merely difficult. If that camel kneels down and was unloaded, it could get in. Because what does he go on to say? Verse 26 they were exceedingly astonished again and said to him, then who can be saved? Verse 27 says, Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible. Not just difficult, impossible. It was difficult for a camel to get through that gate if it existed. I believe Jesus was talking about a literal camel going through the literal eye of a needle. It's not just difficult, it's impossible. What does he go on to say? With man it is impossible, but not with God. Not with God. For all things are possible with God. So if you felt a moment of desperation there, here's the the relieving balm of the good news of Jesus Christ. 
With man it's impossible because of what we said in James 2.10. You fail the law at one point, you're guilty of it all. But now let's look at some good news. With God, all things are possible. Galatians 2.26 We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. That's how you're made right before God. Ephesians 2.8 For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Even the faith to believe the gospel is a gift from God. Okay? And not a result of works so that no one may boast. It's after that that His works flow out of us through His power, for we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand. Listen, it's impossible with man, but oh, the Savior we have. Hebrews 7.25 He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him. What is impossible with man is possible with God. Now Peter, spokesman for the group, often ready to speak up, does it again. He's watching this rich guy leave, thinking about the fact that he and his friends have, have left their nets and followed Jesus. Saying, hey Jesus, see, we've left everything and, and followed you. And Matthew has him, I'm paraphrasing here, saying something like, so what's in it for us? We did listen when you told us to come. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time. Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands. And I want to pause there. As if eternal life is not enough. Jesus promises reward in this lifetime in these terms for those who leave Him. You look at that list. How many of you have severed relationship with family? Not because not you wanted to, but because when you accepted Christ, they rejected you. Are there some in this room? You know what this is talking about. When He says, you will receive a hundredfold, brothers, sisters, mothers, and children, you know what He's talking about? He's talking about this. He's talking about the church family. That's why when Paul, who surely, you, you can bet your bottom dollar, he was rejected by much of his family when he followed Jesus. When he writes the Romans, he says, Rufus' mother, she's a mother to me. He talks in another book about an Onesimus, my son. That wasn't his physical son, but his family was now the church. So listen, I want to encourage you, if you felt the sting of rejection in your blood family for accepting Christ, press into the family of God. That's one of the primary ways he, he blesses those in his family. We're going back soon to see our families in Ohio. And I remember the day where we stood in both their living rooms and prayed long before we had children of our own and we told them God was calling us to Arizona. And we remember their support, but I remember the tears and, and the missing them. And, and they're still our, our family. We're so glad we're going to get to see them. But I can also tell you, God has done what He said He would do for us in this church. So many of you sitting together outside of this, this room even, fellowship. And a couple weeks ago, we were across the table from a couple in the church. Just Our kids were playing with their grandkids. And for two, two and a half hours, sharing good food and sharing stories about how God had worked in our lives. That's family. That's family in the, the body 
of Christ. Ralph Earl said, The meaning of the hundredfold is well understood by Christian workers. A hundred homes are open to them with loving hospitality. The circles of Christian fellowship keeps enlarging until there are hundreds of brothers and sisters in the Lord. But he also adds something pointed here. Jesus is no liar. He always told disciples to count the cost. He said, with persecutions. With persecutions. They hated me, they'll they'll hate you also. You remember him saying that? And we often look at this list and say, well, these other blessings come in spite of the persecutions. But some have said, no, it's not in spite of them. Often it's even through them because the promise is like Matthew 5.10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This was encouragement for Peter. Peter, I know you may feel like last in the eyes of the world. you're not you remember that big promise at the end there and in the age to come eternal life think eternally Peter think eternally is encouragement okay let's close with that verse many who are first will be last and the last first when the disciples wanted to rebuke the children and send them away you, you see their feelings their assessment when they assumed Likely that this young rich ruler must have been right with God and that's why they were shocked. But, but did they get it right? Oh. Who walked away blessed that day? The, the children who were weak and had nothing to offer? Or this man who had it all going on in the eyes of the world? Was it not the children? So I want to encourage you, when you come to Jesus today, Do not come with your resume. Come with a receptive heart to receive what only He can give. Those are the ones who inherit the kingdom of God. I'll close with a fine example of that. There was a woman named Charlotte Elliott. Charlotte lived in Brighton, England. And as she aged in life, health issues plagued her disability to the point where she got bitter against God. She got to that point where she said, if God really loved me, He would never allow this to happen in my life. Got to a point where a Swiss minister came to her house in 1822. She was there, her family was there, and at the table, right in front of the minister, she lost her temper railed against God, railed against her family. Her family was so embarrassed of her, they got up and walked away from the table, and she was left at the table with just her and this Swiss minister. And he looked at her and he said, you're holding to your hate and your anger because you have nothing else in this world to cling to. Consequently, you're sour, you're bitter, and you're resentful. a bold Bold minister. (laughs) She said, what's your cure? He said, the faith that you are trying to despise. So she said, if if I want to become a Christian and share the peace and joy that you have, what would I do? He said, you would give yourself to God just as you are right now. With your fightings, your fear, your hates, your loves, your pride and your shame, you would... 
Give yourself to Him. And she said, I would come to Him just as I am. Is that right? Yes, and she did. And she began to hold on to a verse in John 6.37. The one who comes to Me, I will by no means cast out. She went on to write a poem for a school fundraiser. One of the stanzas goes like this. Just as I am, without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, and that thou biddest me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come. I come. Father, I thank You for Your Word. I thank You that in Your sovereignty and wisdom, You put these children and this man with his worldly resume back to back. You show us such a clear contrast. And I pray that You would work in our hearts today. Any of us that came in here looking to impress You with our resume, let us lay it down. Bring us to that gift of childlike faith in You by which we may inherit Your kingdom. I pray for sensitivity that Your Spirit will work in this room. And if You wish to put a finger on anything that's either keeping us from trusting You the first time or keeping us from trusting You and surrendering to You today, that You would put Your finger on it. Make it clear. Give us strength by Your Spirit to repent and remove it that we might find the only lasting satisfaction there is. In Jesus Christ. Help us not to overestimate whatever it is between us and You. And help us not to underestimate Your Son. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the the King of kings and Lord of lords, who can make any claim on His life He wishes and is more than worth it. Work please, Lord. I pray this morning, even as we take our offering, that we would remember we're stewards. And that we would give this in trust and gratitude to You. Thank You for Your provision. Jesus, the way You care for us as we walk through this world. We love You. In Jesus' name, Amen.